Why do good things happen to bad people? Uh, why do bad things happen to good people? And where is God in the middle of great injustice? Why doesn't God intervene uh, to stop wicked people from doing wicked things? Why does God seem so distant? Why is it so hard uh, to have an emotional sense of intimacy with God? Is it worth trying to keep my faith in the midst of so much opposition to it? Uh, whether opposition in the culture or opposition in the classroom, uh, is it worth it to try and hang on? These are just a few questions that you might personally wrestle with if you are in a season of doubt. If you've ever asked any of these questions, you know quite well, doubt is painful. Uh, it can be a very painful emotion to doubt, whether it's a long time of lingering questions that nag you throughout life, or whether it's a more immediate challenge that causes doubt to kind of spike. Doubt can hang over us like a cloud uh, and rob us of our joy. Now, uh, it, some good news for you. If you have asked any of these questions, you're not alone. According to a 2017 poll by the Barna Research Group, two-thirds of American Christians will go through some season of doubt at least once in their lifetime. And so like last week's theme of guilt, doubt is something that's common to the Christian life. It's something that's going to face us, pretty much all of us, at some point or another. Now, it can take many forms. Sometimes it's rooted in an intellectual question that you have to get to the bottom of before you feel like your doubts can be resolved. Sometimes it's related to an emotional experience, but whatever the cause, it is common and it's painful. We're people of faith, right? And so it's scary when that faith is rocked by some crisis or some scandal, or some skepticism that comes into your life. And so it is a very real question that you will have to face at some point or other in your life, if you haven't already, how am I supposed to pray through doubt? How am I supposed to pray through doubt? Psalm 73 enters into the cloud of doubt with us. We hear about a leader of God's people who had a crisis of his own, his own crisis of faith, and his journey through doubt offers us wisdom for our own doubts, and his solution might surprise you. Here's what Asaph has to say to us this morning. When in doubt, worship God. When in doubt, worship God, because worship calms our doubts. Worship calms our doubts. And so with that in mind, please read with me Psalm 73. This is God's good word to us this morning. May we hear his voice. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken 
like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how often we are like Asaph. Doubting in heart, troubled in mind. But you speak words of truth and comfort to us this morning, uh, most especially the truth that you uh, call us to come near to you and that you calm our doubts in your presence. And so I pray even now that we would sense your presence. We're hungry for you. We need your face to shine upon us. And so we ask that you would speak to us now. Let us hear your voice, O oh God. Calm our doubts even now in the light of your presence. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, before we jump into Psalm 73, I just want to say uh, quickly that this sermon is not about answering the problem of evil. There are plenty of passages in the scripture that if I were preaching on that, that would be the main point of the sermon, answering the problem of evil, but that's not Psalm 73. Now, of course, you might have personal questions about the existence of evil, and you might want to personally talk through some of those either philosophical questions or the more practical questions of your life's experience and 
Of course, I'm absolutely happy to meet with you if that's the case. If you have deep questions or concerns about Christianity, I would love to meet with you and talk about them. There are some really great ways to answer the question, why did God allow evil to happen? But that's not the main question in Psalm 73, I think, as, as I've been in the text this past week. I think the main question of Psalm 73 is not, why did God allow evil to happen? But rather, how do you keep the faith when you experience evil all around you? How do you keep the faith through doubt? And so to get into this, we should probably first pause and ask ourselves, what is doubt? Well, Psalm 73 answers what doubt is. Here's what Psalm 73 has to say. Doubt is a strained relationship with God. Doubt may have an intellectual component at some point in time for some individuals, but at its core, doubt is a relational problem. It's a question of the heart, as Psalm 73 makes quite clear, as Asaph has this repeating word and concern with the state of his heart. It's a heart problem. It's a strained relationship with God. And it's a strained relationship with God because something's happened. You've encountered something that seems to contradict God's character or God's promises. And that's what happens to Asaph. Listen to verses one and two. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In other words, I know that God is good. He's a good God and he promises good things. And then we get to verse two, but... But as for me, that but at the start of verse 2 is the twinge of doubt. It's the creeping suspicion that maybe God isn't quite as good as he says he is. Or maybe he won't take care of us in quite the same way that we hope that he will. It's, it's like any movie, and you've seen these before, movie or TV show, where there's a main character who has a relationship with a mentor, and something happens to strain that relationship between the main character and the mentor. Maybe there's a suspicious email, or you see the mentor hanging out with shady people, and then all of a sudden, doubt starts to set in. Can we trust this person anymore? We don't know. That's what doubt is. And it's the same in our passage this morning. Asaph makes a confession of faith and immediately makes a confession of doubt. His relationship with God has become strained. And whenever this happens to us, there are a couple of common reactions when we experience this strained relationship with God. The first is fear. Sometimes when we feel doubt, immediately after that, we feel fear. You might think that doubt makes you kind of a horrible Christian, uh, or that doubt says something very bad about your faith. Maybe you have kind of a shamefully weak faith, or, or that, that it's, it's kind of this horrendous sin. Uh, and so because we are afraid of doubt, what happens uh, is that we don't ever talk about it. Uh, we don't ever want to let on that we may have doubts because, again, it, it means that we have a, a serious character flaw. Sometimes people are so afraid of doubt that they not only are, keep it to themselves, but then they then shame other people. They shame other Christians who experience doubt, trying to tell them that they need to keep it to themselves, or how could you dare ask questions of God? Because in the fear of doubt, what happens is we're afraid that doubt inevitably means that our loved one will be ripped from the faith, 
or that somehow their doubt will make my faith crumble. And so what you have to do when you feel that fear is you got to stamp it out, stamp out the first spark of it before it turns into a blaze. Well, Psalm 73 comforts the fearful doubter. Asaph was one of the chief singers in the temple. He was a leader of God's people. He was a godly man. He trusted God. Just listen to Psalm 75, a couple of psalms later, also by Asaph. First one, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. Asaph trusted God, and yet even he doubted. And so that means that the godly can doubt. It happens to all of us. The godly can doubt, and also his doubt resolved. As we hear at the end of Psalm 73, it is good for me to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. His doubt resolved. It wasn't an inevitable slide into unbelief forever. He didn't inevitably leave the faith. His doubt was resolved. In fact, he seems like he's even more committed to ministry as a result of it. He kind of digs down into his calling to tell others about the works of God. And so there's lots of comfort here for fearful doubters. Of course, not everyone is a fearful doubter. Some people celebrate doubt. Like, in order to be a thoughtful Christian, you need to question every single thing that the church may have taught you. In the early 2000s, about, I guess now 20 years ago, there was this movement called the Emergent Church. And many leaders in the Emergent Church celebrated doubt and really said that, again, to to be faithful, you need to constantly be questioning the things that traditional Christians had said. So with this insistence on celebrating doubt, a couple of things happened. The first is that immediately there was this sense of freshness. There was exciting things happening, but then long term, there was a lot of damage. And, and many of those leaders ended up leaving the faith, and indeed many of the people that were following them also left the faith, including many of my friends. And so I've seen firsthand what celebrating doubt can do. In the end, it just deteriorates or erodes your faith entirely. And so Psalm 73 chastens the celebratory doubter. Sure, doubt is part of this life. We can expect that some doubt will happen to us at some point in time, but your goal should be reuniting with the God that we meet in the scriptures. That's the goal. And so we can't celebrate doubt because if you celebrate doubt, you're celebrating a relational strain. If that's what doubt is, doubt's a relational strain. And it's not good for any relationship to celebrate relational strain. That would be bad advice if a friend asked you how to get along with someone else to celebrate relational strain. No, that's not how you cultivate an intimate, close relationship, and that affects our relationship with God, too. So why do we doubt? Let's go back to what doubt is. Doubt is a strained relationship with God that happens because you encounter something that seems to contradict God's character or God's promises. Doubt happens 
because there's some sort of dissonance between you and the Lord, and that dissonance has its origin in sin. The world is an incredibly broken place. There is great evil in it. Like we heard in verses 4 through 11, evil people prosper. They oppress others, and no one brings them to justice. Their lives are easy while they are making life hard for other people. They speak against God incredibly arrogantly, but no one corrects them. And so they flourish with no one to punish them, no one to bring them to justice. It actually looks as if their life is a decent way to live, and so other people start to imitate them. They draw other people into their way of life. And meanwhile, the righteous suffer even while they do the right things. That's all throughout this psalm. So where's the justice? If God cares, where is he? Doubt happens because there's sin in the world. And that encounter with sin bumps up against God's good promises. Again, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, but as for me, I have seen great evil and it shakes me. Now, of course, the world isn't the only thing that's broken. We are broken too. Doubt often involves personal sin, and Asaph recognizes this. When he comes to a better frame of mind, he looks back on his actions, and we hear him evaluate some of his motivations, and it's not just righteous indignation. Uh, Here's what he says in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Or verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, uh, what does my righteousness gain me? What's the point if there's no immediate payoff? And that's a pretty cynical question, isn't it? If we're honest, sin impacts much of our doubt. Our selfish hearts make us ask, is it really worth it? Uh, if there's no reward here or now? What's the point of righteousness if it doesn't seem to work? And also we've inherited a sin nature from our parents, Adam and Eve, and it makes it easy for us to follow in their footsteps and doubt God whenever we hear something that contradicts his word. When the brokenness of the world meets the brokenness of our own hearts, it often results in a crisis of faith. And so Asaph in this psalm invites us to examine our hearts when we're doubting, where is sin at work? You could think of it kind of like the check engine light in your car. The check engine light comes on and it's an indicator that something has gone wrong. But if you keep driving it, you know that you're just going to damage whatever's happening on the inside. And so think of your doubt like that. Doubt happens, and what it indicates is there's a strained relationship with your heavenly Father. But unfortunately, we tend to treat our doubt the opposite way that we do when that check engine light comes on. Check engine light comes on, we usually schedule an appointment quickly because we want to take care of it. But when doubt crops up in our lives, one of the things that we tend to do is distance ourselves from God, to pull away from Him, to try and protect ourselves and preserve some sense of peace and quiet. And that distancing ourselves from God only strains the relationship further and further until there is no real relationship left. And so what should we do? Well, Psalm 73 advises, when in doubt, worship God. 
When you're struggling with doubt, draw near to God. Worship God because worship calms your doubt. It moves your heart and your mind back to God. And that is how worship calms our doubt. Now, I'm not saying that worship is the immediate cure for doubt. I think it's really easy for pastors um, or Christian leaders or even just friends to kind of over-promise quick solutions to doubt because, like I said earlier, we're afraid of doubt. And doubt's uncomfortable. And so we kind of overpromise that something will immediately fix it. But like healing a sprained ankle, healing a strained relationship can take time. You might have trouble believing God's promises for a time, depending on whatever made you start doubting them in the first place. But worship is the right response. Even though it takes time, worship is the right response because worship connects you with God. Also, notice that I'm not saying that more knowledge will cure your doubt. That's also a temptation as well for pastors and for other people. Oh, you're doubting? Let me give you a book. I've got a book that'll set you straight, teach you the right things that you should know, calm all your doubts, fix it right away. Well, of course, knowledge helps. And many people throughout the world have been deeply impacted by books like Mere Christianity or The Case for Christ or any of those books that can help lay out the truth of the faith. But again, knowledge is not the cure to doubt. Worship is actually what helps to calm our doubts down because knowledge alone never was really the point, right? Even if you learn a fact about God, but you remain kind of a disinterested person, then you haven't really understood what you've learned. Knowledge was always meant to propel us towards worship. So worship is the goal. If doubt is a strained relationship with God, then you need relational repair. You need to get back into God's presence. And that's exactly where Asaph goes. The turn in this psalm happens in verses 16 and 17. So again, Asaph, the drama is that he has been struggling with doubt. And then he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. It is in the presence of God that his doubts were calmed. Being in God's presence was exactly what he needed. So how does worship calm our doubt? According to this psalm, worship calms our doubt by giving us five gifts. The five gifts of worship, repentance, remembrance, riches, rest, and relationships. Uh, That is the gifts of worship that God uses to calm our doubts. Worship brings repentance and remembrance. Pay attention to where Asaph went. He went to the sanctuary of God, the temple. And what went on in the temple It was the place of sacrifice. Animal after animal was slaughtered there. The temple was actually a really bloody place in the Old Testament. There was basins for collecting blood, washing blood. It was a very bloody place. And Asaph had a front row seat to all of it. And so as Asaph goes into the sanctuary of God and witnesses sacrifices taking place, that blood reminded Asaph that God takes sin very, very seriously. 
And so that's why Asaph reflects on these sacrifices and then can actually proclaim the eventual downfall of the arrogant and the wicked. Of course God will judge these evildoers. He will not let sin go unpunished. Just look at all the sacrifices. Look at all the blood. And then all of a sudden, when he sees all of that blood, Asaph's questions look kind of petty. How can he accuse God of overlooking sin? Asaph is immediately cut to the heart. Uh, He looks back on his actions and he sees how sinful his complaint was. He calls it stumbling in verse 2 or in verse 15, a near betrayal. In verses 20 and 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. That is a man who understands his sin. Worship brings repentance. It's very hard to hold on to cynicism and bitterness and pride when we stand before the holy God. Worship breaks our heart of stone. Worship doesn't just break us. Worship also builds us. Worship brings remembrance of our salvation. The sacrifices show God's wrath, but they also show that God wanted to forgive. God saves. God was willing to turn his wrath from the people toward something else. So worship reminds us of the tremendous grace of God in our salvation, and it's that way for us too. Now, we are not in a bloody sanctuary. Ours is actually the bloodless worship because the final offering has already been given. The spotless Lamb of God has been sacrificed for us already. We gather now to worship the risen Christ who gave himself for us. And so as we gather in worship, our strength is renewed. We are reminded of our great and glorious salvation. We might still have lingering questions. We might wonder how the world works. We might ask questions about the relationship of science and faith. But when we're reminded of our salvation, this one thing is clear. Our God is good. Our God is gracious and our God is merciful. He loves us enough to save us. He loves us enough to turn his wrath on himself, to take the penalty of our sin upon himself, to save us through the finished work of Christ. So worship brings repentance and remembrance. Worship also gives us riches and rest. One of Asaph's main complaints, verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. It's really easy for us to envy temporal gain. We might wonder why we're bothering with all this Christianity when others are getting rich without it. But as Asaph worships God, he realizes that temporal riches pale in comparison to eternal riches. When he's with God, he can say, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. God is the ultimate glory. And when we're in relationship with him, there is nothing that we lack. Now, if I owned the Hope Diamond, why would I be jealous of a neighbor who might have a couple of gold coins? My wealth would far outweigh that neighbor's wealth. And we are rich, dear friends. 
We are absolutely rich. We have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who made creation happen and who rose our Lord Christ from the dead. We have the Holy Spirit. We have access to the Son of God through whom creation was made and through whom creation continues to hold together the powerful king of the universe. We're united to him. We are beloved sons and daughters of the most high God. We are rich. Billions of dollars couldn't replace what we have in God. We're rich. And that allows us to rest. Remember that part of Asaph's complaint was that the rich were always at ease. And let's be honest, wealth does enable a sense of rest. If your car breaks down and you are fabulously wealthy, you just buy a new one. It's not really a problem to go out and buy a new car. Uh, If you're tired of life in the city and you want to get out of the hustle and bustle for a weekend, just get out on a private yacht. If you're rich, these things don't matter. Just go out and rest. You can afford it. But again, temporal riches only bring temporal rest. And so how much more can we rest when we are rich in God? Sometimes our crisis of faith happens at moments of great exhaustion, when we kind of collapse in a heap and just realize that we are not sufficient to bear it anymore. Well, here are the good news for you. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or uh, we, we could look at verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. And that would be in this life. You guide me with your counsel now and afterward. After this life, you will receive me into glory. Uh, It's an amazing rest that we have in God. We have eternal life. And that eternal life enables us to rest even in this life. You can rest from the need to live up to other people's expectations. You can rest from your attempts to control your life or your appearance or your health. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. You can rest from trying to have it all together because you have God. You have God now, and when you die, he will usher you into his glory so you can have an even greater portion of him then. Worship brings us riches, and worship brings us rest. And finally, worship gives us relationships. Doubt can be a tremendously isolating experience, but worship reunites us with relationships that really matter. Most importantly, worship reunites us with God. Listen to the intimacy of this. 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Verse 28, for me, it is good to be near God. Worship offers us incredible intimacy with our God who loves us so much. He holds us by the hand to bring us through these things, to bring us to himself. And then when we're in the presence of God, who do we find? We find that we're not alone even in the presence of God, but we are with others. The sanctuary of God in the Old Testament would be a highly corporate thing. There were people all the time worshiping together as a community, and so it's the same for us. Worship brings us into relationship with each other, and that's a profound help for us in times of doubt. Our friends can help us if we have deep questions and struggles in the faith. 
Our friends can help point out our sin. Our friends can remind us of the gospel. Community in Christ is a profoundly enriching experience. Uh, The experiences that we have in Christian community enrich our lives profoundly, and there is great rest in knowing that you're not alone, but you have a covenant community who is with you to help you bear your burdens. So these are the gifts that come from worship. That's how worship calms our doubt. Worship brings repentance as we turn from cynicism and lack of trust. Worship reminds us about God's tremendous love for us, soothing our deep fears. Worship helps us access God's riches, lifting our hearts in gratitude, putting us in connection with the tremendous grace that we have in God. Worship brings rest, granting us relief from the burdens and pressures of this life, and worship restores relationships so that we don't have to struggle alone. So how should you pray when you're assailed with doubt? Start with worship. Come on Sundays and sit here and, uh, and be with God in the midst of all of your questions and all of your fears and concerns. Sing the songs, pray the prayers, confess your sin and confess your faith and listen to the sermon, not just to gain some sort of theological talking point, but so that you can actually hear from God, listen to God's voice speaking to you. I always recommend during the sermon that if you take notes right down at the top of the page, what is God speaking to me today? And so listen to hear God's voice speaking to you through the Holy Spirit. And then from worship, move into your private prayers and rehearse the story of salvation again and again and again. Tell God how good and faithful he is. Glory in the salvation that is yours. Read the New Testament and hear about the glorious riches that you have in Christ Jesus. And do this again and again and again and then ask. Ask for the grace to stand in faith. This is the furthest thing from fake it till you make it. It's more like soaking your soul in the very thing that it needs most, delighting in the presence of God and enjoying fellowship with him. And gradually, gradually, your faith will heal. Your relationship with God will be strengthened, and you'll be able to say with Asaph, who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Worship calms our doubt. Just ask Andrea Dilly. Andrea Dilly was a daughter of missionaries, She was raised in the church, maybe the poster child for like what a a covenant household would look like, Uh, but she struggled with profound doubts. Uh, And after a long journey with that, she ended up leaving the faith in her mid-20s. She called it quits, but just calling it quits and leaving the church didn't help her faith to come back. In fact, her doubts didn't go away. They remained even more. And so after a few years, her doubts led her back to the church. She went back to worship and and over time committed to continually going, even though she had some deep questions. And over time, as she sat in the church, 
Is she participated in worship? Is she listened to the sermon and all of the things that go on in worship? Her heart ended up softening toward the Lord. Her faith was renewed. And one of the things that she learned from this experience, in her words, she says, my doubt belonged in church. My doubt belonged in church. My doubts belong inside the space of the sanctuary. And surely Psalm 73 agrees with that. So friends, if you are doubting, church is the best place to go. God is not afraid of your doubts. He's not put off by them. He actually welcomes you to draw near to him as you bear these doubts. So don't let your doubts drive you away from the church. Use your doubt to pull you back to church. Use your doubt to empower and motivate your worship because God will use these times of doubts to strengthen your relationship with him. In some ways, you may look on them as a gift in and of themselves when you experience deeper intimacy with God on the other side. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, I thank God for every storm that wrecked me upon the rock of Jesus Christ. And these doubts are storms that are blowing us towards the safe harbor where the Lord is. He is here for you. And so friends, when you are in doubt, come and worship. Jesus is here. Doubt no more. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your spirit that's with us. And he speaks tenderly towards us. Lord God, uh, if we are to be wrecked, let it be upon the rock of Christ. And when we are there, would you build us back up? And so I pray for, for all of us as we go through life. There is so much that threatens to shake our faith. Would you be with us in our seasons of doubt? Confirm your goodness to us that we would be able to say, truly, God is good. And you're good all the time. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.